from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. I'm a This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, March 11th. Today, Elizabeth Warren's proposal to break up tech giants. Questions for Boeing after a deadly plane crash in Ethiopia and a return to Fukushima. big tech, Senator Elizabeth Warren is not a fan. You know, that is the problem in America today. We have these giant tech companies that think they rule the earth. And now, the 2020 presidential candidate has a plan to break up companies like Facebook, Google, and Amazon. Full disclosure, Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos also owns the Washington Post. Senator Warren announced this at a campaign event in Long Island City in New York, which is significant in that that was the site where Amazon was going to build its second headquarters before it later pulled out. Brian Fung is a tech reporter for The Washington Post, and he was watching as the proposal that Warren announced on Friday kept gaining momentum over the weekend. This topic really ballooned at South by Southwest, one of the country's largest annual tech festivals. So my view is break those things apart and we will have a much more competitive, robust market in America. That's how capitalism should work. She's definitely going after some of the world's largest and most successful and most profitable businesses, companies like Facebook that not only owns the social infrastructure that you use when you surf your newsfeed, but also apps like WhatsApp and Instagram, which themselves have been growing even faster than core Facebook has been. Companies like Amazon that not only has a massive logistics network that's designed to get you anything that you want within 24 or 48 hours, but also sort of underpin much of the internet's underlying infrastructure with Amazon Web Services. Companies like Google that not only operate a massive search engine, but also have ancillary services like YouTube that, you know, pull in billions of dollars in revenues and have been vectors for things like misinformation and conspiracy theories, all of which sort of underscores how massive these companies are and the role that they play in our civil society. So tell me about Elizabeth Warren's new proposal. She basically announced it you know, in a Medium blog post. And the proposal centers around breaking up the big tech companies. There are two parts of this. One part is a legislative solution that would essentially divide the tech industry into a wealthy category and a less wealthy category. This is essentially so that she can go after the major players like Amazon, Google, and Facebook. Then the other part of her proposal has to do with the regulatory side, where she says she would appoint regulators who would look at past mergers that the industry has completed and evaluate them to see whether or not 
they were good for competition and whether they should be unwound, basically. I think a lot of people would look at this proposal and not immediately understand what the problem is, right? Like you look at something like Amazon and Prime and the fact that people can now order things more cheaply on the internet than they've ever been able to before. You can get your toilet paper to show up at your doorstep in 24 hours. What does Elizabeth Warren see as the problem with the fact that a lot of these companies have become so large? Senator Warren is really concerned about this idea of tech platforms discriminating against other businesses, whether that's through burying search results that include their companies on, say, page 9 or 10 of Google search results, or perhaps you know, making it so that you know, Amazon might advertise its own products alongside competing products at a steep discount, which could put those other retailers in a position of having to you know, lose money on their products by matching that price or, you know, agreeing to be acquired by some other company, perhaps Amazon itself, that then sort of results in a feedback loop where Amazon just gets bigger and bigger and gains more scale and can charge lower prices. And so in her proposal for how to crack down on some of these companies, she uses the term platform utilities and that she would start defining things like Amazon and Facebook as platform utilities. What does she mean by that and why is that important? There's not a whole lot of definition around what that term means, but in general, it sounds like she's interested in applying a sort of framework that we've historically applied to things like telecom companies where we treat them as essential services and utilities that we all rely on and therefore ought to demand certain expectations of them. So is there historical precedent for the idea of turning these big tech companies into quote-unquote platform utilities? I think you can look at what the U.S. government has historically done with things like telecom companies and airlines as a potential guide for the way we think about platform utilities. The government has very strict rules that it applies to companies like AT&T and Verizon about how it treats the data that you generate when you place a phone call, for instance. And those are all related to AT&T and Verizon's status as quote-unquote common carriers. While it's not really clear what the senator means by the term platform utilities, I can imagine a scenario where she would want the government to regulate companies like Google and Facebook in ways that are similar to the way that we think about airlines or or phone companies. And in this case, it seems like one major expectation that the senator would apply to the companies if she became president would be preventing companies like Amazon from being able to sell their own products on their platform, which she views as a form of potentially unfair competition that squeezes out third-party sellers and other retailers. Because you're providing the marketplace itself, right? But then you're also saying, my own company's products are going to be prioritized on this marketplace and they're going to be cheaper than anything else and then they come up higher in your search results and that's unfair for them to have the infrastructure for buying the thing and also be in a position to be the most successful seller. Yeah, that's right. And over the weekend, she used an analogy that's related to baseball. Or you can own a team, but you can't do both at the same time. So let's break up. 
And so how would that actually work? What would need to be put in place to be able to regulate these tech companies in this way? Right now, the tech industry sort of exists in a regulatory no-man's land where, for the most part, they're accountable to regulators for, you know, engaging in unfair and deceptive practices. That's something that's enforced by the Federal Trade Commission. But the Federal Trade Commission doesn't have the power to write rules and regulations generally. It wields its power by filing lawsuits and threatening lawsuits and getting companies to agree to behavioral conditions that in settlements that if they violate those conditions in the future, then they become subject to financial penalties. But from what I've heard, traditionally the FTC's powers to do this and other existing regulatory agencies in the government, they're just like not that good at actually punishing tech companies. So what Elizabeth Warren is proposing, would creating a new agency give them more teeth and more power to really come down hard on companies like Facebook and Google? I don't think the senator's proposal actually calls for creating a new agency, but I think it does call for strengthening those agencies and essentially putting in regulators and political appointees who are interested in taking on Silicon Valley more aggressively. Theoretically, the senator, if she became president, would have the power to nominate more aggressive antitrust regulators to the FTC and, and to the Justice Department who could you know, take a look at the tech industry more closely. And what do tech companies have to say about this? Well, tech companies are obviously very opposed to this idea. They're calling it extreme and unwarranted. But it just sort of goes to show how far the conversation about tech has shifted from, say, you know, 2016, when the tech industry was still very much allied with democratic politicians and seen as, you know, occupying the same intellectual space. And what have other 2020 presidential candidates said so far about regulating the tech industry? So Senator Bernie Sanders has been one of the most outspoken critics of the tech industry, particularly going after Amazon and its treatment of workers and in calling for uh, Amazon to raise its wages. And Senator Cory Booker has also gone after tech companies for consolidation and concentration issues as well. So we've seen certainly a number of Democratic candidates trying to find ways to position themselves against Silicon Valley, which is something that we haven't historically seen in the past. It seems to me that what Senator Warren is proposing is potentially the most detailed plan that we've heard so far about tech regulation. And very much in her wheelhouse in terms of a person who has in the past come up with an idea for a new regulatory agency to crack down on the financial industry, and that that is an agency that is currently in place today, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, that was first conceived by Senator Warren. With with that in mind, like, does she have the experience and ability to be able to put something like what she's proposing into practice? I think she does. I think the harder question here is whether or not she can build the type of coalition she would need to successfully pull something like this off. As a senator, she could propose legislation. She hasn't yet done so on this specific proposal. But if she did, she would need, you know, some Republican support in the Senate to get her proposal passed. So the big challenge for her is, you know, not only building bridges with Republicans, but also building bridges among Democrats, many of whom disagree over how best to regulate the tech industry. 
Brian Fung is a tech reporter for The Washington Post. On Sunday, a flight leaving from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, crashed just a few minutes after takeoff, killing all 157 passengers and crew. This is the second time in recent months that a Boeing 737 MAX 8 has gone down. In October of last year, the exact same type of plane crashed after it took off from Jakarta, Indonesia, also killing everyone on board. My name is Aaron Gregg. I cover defense contracting, government contractors, and occasionally commercial aviation for The Washington Post. Aaron says that it's too early to know for sure what caused this crash in Ethiopia. But the fact that the circumstances of this crash appear similar to the ones in Indonesia, it raises questions about this Boeing aircraft. What happened in Indonesia is still somewhat of a mystery, though it's been the subject of much, much closer and more valid investigation, having been four months out. What appears to have happened there was that the pilots, they were literally fighting to keep the plane up, pulling back on the control column, which if you're a pilot, when you pull on that, the plane is supposed to go up. In this case, it wasn't doing that, and the plane eventually went into a nosedive. And why wasn't the plane pulling up when those pilots were pulling back on the control column? So that is still being investigated as well. What a lot of pilot groups are concerned about in the United States, actually, is that Boeing put out an advisory a few weeks after that crash, basically saying that there is a new feature in the 737 MAX 8 where an autopilot that is designed to keep the plane level will in some cases override that manual override, make it so that when you pull back on the control column, it does not take control back from the autopilot. So That seems like a really big problem. Yeah. If you're a pilot, it's probably the most terrifying thing you can think of is that you won't be able to have control of the plane at a moment when you need it. The idea that autopilot has, in general made airplanes much safer, more manageable, but that only really works if pilots feel that they're in complete control and they know how to account for every possible situation. So I've heard of a 737 before, obviously, but what is a 737 MAX 8 and why is it such a big deal for Boeing? The MAX 8 is basically the newest update to that, just like when you upgrade your iPhone from the iPhone 4 to the 5 or whatever the latest one is, (laughs) Boeing does that too. They say, all right, we've heard what our customers want. We've come out with a new edition. Your business decisions at crucial points position your airline for future success. The Boeing 737 MAX is one of those decisions. It's not significantly different from past models of the MAX. Basically what they did is they changed the width of the plane slightly and they moved the engines up a little bit. It uses natural laminar flow technology. What's that? Here's someone smart to explain it. Natural laminar flow technology reduces fuel consumption by controlling the growth. Never mind, we don't have time for that. But the results, it shaves off even more fuel usage. And so that's what this software update was meant to account for, was that the engines were placed slightly differently. And so they didn't want to have to train pilots on this new model. So they looked for a software fix. And this plane is all over the world. That's right. That's right. So the company has delivered 354 of them around the world, but they have another 2,912 on order. So if people determine that this plane is in some way flawed, 
it could entail a lot of future losses for Boeing. So who is investigating this crash in Ethiopia? And how soon are we going to know for sure whether or not it was caused by this same problem with the manual override? So it could be months or even years before we've actually confirmed it. Really depends on what comes out of this black box. If we find that the pilot was reporting having lost control, having tried to pull the nose upward when in reality it was being nudged downward relentlessly by the autopilot, that could very strongly suggest that there was a commonality. What analysts are telling me, though, is that if there's any commonality at all between what happened in Indonesia and what happened in Ethiopia, this is going to be a very serious problem for Boeing in the long term. Well, yeah, because you're saying that the official results of this investigation might not come out for months or years, but people are already really, really worried about the rest of these 737 MAX 8s all over the world that are still flying. That's right. That's right. In, in fact, China, the regulators in China actually ordered that all domestic airlines ground their flights, which was seen as a very extreme step, probably the most significant grounding of a Boeing airplane in at least five years. And other countries as well, right? Ethiopia is grounded. There is Indonesia said that the 737 MAX 8 can't fly there. How about the U.S.? The U.S., the two main airlines that fly these here are Southwest Airlines and American Airlines. They're both still staying as of now that they stand by the safety of these airplanes. They have not made any, any decision to ground the airplanes. What analysts are telling me is that depending on what happens with this black box, the next step would be for the FAA to order that they all be inspected. And then that could lead to broader grounding. This seems really bad for Boeing. It sure is. This plane is, in many ways, their bet on the future of international air travel. In large part, the company's selling point was that the 737 MAX 8, it was basically just a slightly better update to older models of the 737, which is a very tried and tested airplane. There's no reason why anyone should expect that there's something wrong with the 737. It's just that this software change was put into the MAX 8, and uh, apparently pilots were not briefed on how to deal with it. And why weren't they briefed on how to deal with it? So that's not entirely clear at this point. The New York Times has reported that there was an internal requirement at Boeing that there would be no new training as a part of this new update. So presumably, if you have to train pilots on a whole new plane, it's harder to sell them. Because it costs the airlines time and money to send their pilots off to training. That's right. And it's a hassle for the customer as well. So we don't necessarily know that that was the decision that was made. When you ask Boeing about this, they will emphasize that regulators here signed off on it. Any decisions that they made, the FAA gave Boeing their stamp of approval. So maybe next we should go to the FAA and say, hey, guys, what happened here? Aaron Gregg is a business reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. The slow-moving recovery after the 2011 nuclear disaster in Fukushima, Japan. We've just driven through the radiated zone near the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant. Uh, You're not really supposed to get out of the car or have your window down. Simon Denier is the Tokyo bureau chief for The Post. 
He recently visited the city and surrounding region of Fukushima. We did briefly get out and look at a deserted ramen shop, which was obviously abandoned after the earthquake and tsunami uh, in a great hurry. And nobody has been back since. The soy sauce bottles knocked over, still on the counter, packet of cigarettes, glasses, bowls, uh, chopsticks, all there as it was on the day that it was all abandoned nearly eight years ago. Really eerie scene. And of course, because of the radiation, nobody can go back. Nobody can recover or tidy up this. So the owner of this shop has obviously moved on to do something else if indeed they survived. The disaster in Fukushima was unprecedented. Eight years ago today, an earthquake triggered a tsunami, which then caused massive destruction at the city's nuclear plant. In total, the disaster killed 16,000 people, and much of the city still has dangerously high levels of radiation. We've just come out of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant, where we were shown around for several hours by officials from TEPCO, the electricity company. There is still radiation in this site. We had to be extremely careful where we went and how long we went outside and how close we went to the reactors. We all had dose meters on us, personal dose meters. We weren't exposed to excess radiation, but in the areas nearer the reactors, people still have to wear protective suits if they're doing any work. And of course, the reactors themselves are so dangerous, humans can't go inside. They're having to use robots to scope out the work that needs to be done and ultimately to remove debris and molten fuel. Further from the power plant, there are actually large parts of Fukushima that the government says are safe. It's been trying to get people to move back. But so far, there have not been many takers. So the government took us there because they wanted to show that things had recovered. But if you go closer to the nuclear plant, you go to an area where people have only just been allowed back. And then even further, you can go to places where people are not recommended to go back and live. You can pass through these areas. And so these areas are effectively ghost towns. They're towns that were abandoned on the day of the earthquake and tsunami. Japan is trying to highlight the Fukushima recovery story as it makes the case that it's time for the country to restart many of the nuclear reactors that have sat idle since the disaster. But the Japanese public, which once got a third of its electricity from nuclear power, they're still skeptical. There's a prominent seismologist who warned before the accident that Japan was vulnerable to an earthquake and tsunami. Japan's nuclear industry was vulnerable to an earthquake and tsunami. And the government and the industry buried his warnings. They downplayed them. They delayed putting them out. They more or less sidelined his warnings. The way I I think about it, very simplistically, is that Japan is a land of earthquakes and volcanoes. It's a land that gave the world the word tsunami. So if you're going to have a nuclear industry in Japan, you have to bear that in mind. I'm not a nuclear expert, but just from a simplistic point of view, I think you do have to wonder whether Japan heeded the warnings of its experts and whether it's still heeding the warnings of those same experts. 
Simon Denier covers Japan and the Koreas for The Post. In 2020, when Japan hosts the Olympics, six baseball and softball games are set to be held in Fukushima. That's it for today's show. To learn more about the stories in this episode, go to postreports.com or join in on the conversation using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.